Dear Father, we thank you for the many blessings, the many mercies that we encounter, that we receive from you every day. Many we take for granted, and perhaps not more so than the fact that we have the chance to assemble freely and study your word and share it with others. Father, what a blessing it is that we have this, and what an obligation and responsibility that we have to share that with others who are not so blessed. We thank you for the privilege to serve in that way. Tonight, we take a small step in that direction to teach and then to hear and listen and and learn, not only to uh, share with the Internet, Father, but to share individually in our own walk with others. Uh, We pray for clarity in the teaching. We pray for a confidence and an assurance that it is from the Holy Spirit, that it that it is a teaching, Father, that is from you. And uh, most of all, Father, we pray for a, a conviction where necessary so that we may align with the truth that you present. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go back into the text. We're at uh, the end of chapter 14. We have a small section there that we cover at the end of that chapter. We dive into 15 and then... As I promised at the outset, we go to 16 and 17 tonight. Remember the setting. We're in a series of oracles or worded prophecies given from God to Isaiah to be delivered to Israel's enemies. And these are prophecies of judgment, so we call them burdens. They're burdensome on those they fall upon. So we started with, if you remember, who? Who was the first one? Babylon was the one we looked at last time. And Babylon was a complex one because it involved several ideas and issues. We studied through all of that. It brought us to this point in chapter 14, verse 28. Next, we cover Philistia. Looking at Philistia here in a second, these are nations that at times were enemies of Israel, some more so than others. But they were also interesting at times because Israel would turn to these nations in an unfaithful apostasy, looking for strength or comfort or uh, an ally at one time or another. So there there was a... symbiotic relationship. Though they fought with Israel at times, at other times they became a a snare or a trap for Israel in the way that they would bring Israel down. I'm going to give you up front something to think about that we'll cover throughout the text tonight. You would probably imagine, having studied this far along with me in Isaiah, that it's not all that meets the eye with what we're studying here. These oracles are interesting. Last time we saw a lot of interesting stuff about the Antichrist and so on. But wouldn't we expect Isaiah to have something else up his sleeve And before all is said and done, we'll be able to look back over each of these oracles to these various nations and see a puzzle coming together with each of the pieces. And that's what we're here to look for tonight. We've seen Babylon. We'll hold that one in the back of our minds as we go to the next. And we'll see two or three more here tonight. And then we'll see uh, more in the weeks to come. Let's start with Isaiah 14, verse 28, Philistia. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you. Because the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root, a viper will come out. And its fruit will be a flying serpent. Those who are most helpless will eat. And the needy will lie down in security. I will destroy your root with famine. And will kill off your survivors. Wail, O gate. Cry, O city. Melt away, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes from the north. And there is no straggler in his ranks. How then... Will one answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it. Probably one of the more inscrutable passages we've read from Isaiah, at least in its face, because there's a lot of imagery there, a lot of symbols perhaps 
but it's not exactly clear at first how they fit together. The thing that you start with in a passage like this is the thing that starts the passage. In this case, it's notable. Isaiah dates the prophecy. He dates it to the year of uh, King Ahaz's death. That's a debatable point in time. It's somewhere between 715 and 720 B.C. What's interesting is Isaiah doesn't normally date his prophecies. So it stands to reason it has something to do with what he's talking about. And specifically, it explains the meaning of verse 29. Verse 29, Ahaz's death is described in verse 28. And then in verse 29, you see the results that accompanied his death. His death, Ahaz's death, was a turning point for the history of Philistia. And again, this is drawing on what we know about that uh, nation of people historically. They benefited under Ahaz's rule prior to his death because Ahaz was a weak and largely ineffectual leader within Israel, which naturally gave the Philistines an advantage militarily, and they took advantage of that uh, opportunity. Their land expanded into portions of Israel during Ahaz's reign, and they ended up taking over parts of Israel and making it part of the Philistine nation. And they rejoiced subsequently upon Assyria's venturing into Israel, northern Israel, and then later into Judah, and conquering that land. They were, oh yeah, let's go get them. Remember we, early, we studied earlier in uh, Isaiah at the point of the Assyrian march into northern Israel? Who joined them? These other nations from the east and the west? One of them was the Philistines. So they are glad to see in verse 29 the rod that struck you is being broken. They're, in other words, they were rejoicing at seeing the rod of Israel or the house of David would be another way to see it being broken, so to speak, from the invasion of Assyria. They're cheering on the Assyrians. That's what is being referenced in verse 29. But they're being warned here by Isaiah, don't rejoice over that. Don't take pleasure in that. He says, because from this same event, your own destruction will come. Uh, That's what he means there when he says, from the serpent's root, a viper will come out and its fruit will be a flying serpent. Okay, those are images. Let me help you understand them. There's a movement there from progressively harmless to progressively deadly. A serpent is a non-poisonous snake, a garden snake, something you would see as a serpent, but without any harm potentially coming to you from it. That's Assyria coming in and taking over Israel. No harm to Philistia. They were happy to see it happen. Let me give you some cross-references out of Scripture just to help fill in these gaps for you. In Second Chronicles 28.18, we hear this. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ahijalan, Gedaroth, and Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So the, the, chronicle, the, the chronicler here said, that these people in the Philistine nation were able to come in and take over part of Israel because God allowed it as punishment against Judah and specifically against their king. Now, Philistia is actually not a nation proper. It's actually five city nations, city-states. Five cities, each with their own king, that were kind of allied together as a single group. But they were independent cities. That's why he keeps saying it points along the way here, O Philistia, all of you, all of you. He's saying that to reference the fact that it's a collection of these cities. All of you are included in this prophecy. Part of their cities, uh, you'll listen to the names of of some of their cities. These are the five major cities. You'll recognize some of these names. Ashkelon, Ashdod, but Gaza, Ekron, and Gath. Gath and Gaza are still modern cities in Israel. Those were two of the cities that were Philistine, Philistine cities at the time. 
That's the serpent. The serpent is Philistia watching Israel taken by Assyria, rejoicing over it. Harmless to them, what they think is an apparent deadly strike against Israel. Then the viper comes. This comes as a result of Ahaz's death and Hezekiah's rise to power. 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, verse 6 is where we hear about the second stage, the viper. Talking about Hezekiah, these verses say, For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So the first stage of moving from serpent to viper is Hezekiah himself beating back the Philistines in the parts of the nation that they had taken under Ahaz's rule. And then finally, the viper turning into a flying serpent. What's a flying serpent? A dragon. If you had to take a poisonous snake, what's the worst thing that could happen to a poisonous snake from from our point of view? Give it wings. Right? Then you're really in trouble then because now you can't escape it as easily. And a dragon is the imagery that goes with that. What do we see compared to a dragon or a flying serpent in Scripture? Satan himself, Revelation 20, verse 2. He is the dragon, the serpent of old. So what I want to convey here is that there is an intentional use of imagery here. It's not random. You know, it's not that he just happened to pick a flying serpent because that's a cool image. It's intentionally directing us to something. Remember that God uses one place name, one nation, more than any other to characterize the enemy and his work in the world? What is that place? Babylon. So, wouldn't it be interesting if it was Babylon who ultimately struck the death blow against the Philistines in keeping with the flying serpent motif? And sure enough, that's what happened. After Hezekiah kicked them back and and rebelled against Assyrian forces, that gave way to the rise of the Babylonian Empire and their eventual conquering of Assyria, followed by a conquering of the Philistines. Their conquering of the Philistines was so complete in the day that it occurred that it left absolutely nothing of the Philistine culture, people, or nation. Look at verse 30 and onward in what I've already read. He says, Those who are most helpless will eat, and the needy will lie down in security. He's not talking about the Philistines there. He's actually talking about who? Who are the needy, the helpless and the needy? From the Philistines' point of view, who are those? Israel, right? Remember how this started? Don't be rejoicing over Israel's troubles. Because he says in verse 30, tables will be turned. Those who are the helpless, they'll be the ones eating. Those who are needy will be the ones who will have security. In other words, they saw Israel's downfall into the Assyrians as end of story, game over. God says, oh, not so fast. That serpent turns into a viper, turns into a flying dragon, and you're the ones who will actually have no rescue, while Israel will have a rebirth of sorts under Hezekiah. The enemy will come, he says, from where? Verse 31, from the north. No stragglers in his ranks. Does that sound familiar in describing an army from a few chapters back? In describing Assyria's arrival, there was a description of Assyria being fast. It's like a a speedy train coming at them. This is, again, a very swift, powerful army. It's Babylon. Babylon showed up in about the 5th century B.C. and absolutely leveled Philistia. The culture ceased to exist at that point. Absolutely ceased to exist. So, there's your first oracle. That's a puzzle piece. Just put it aside for a moment. So you have Babylon, 
as a puzzle piece. You have Philistia as a puzzle piece. Both enemies of Israel, both who were going to be judged by God for who they were and done in very specific ways. Now look at this next one. This next one is a long one. It runs through this chapter and into the next. Verse 1 of chapter 15, we start an oracle of Moab. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Ker of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple and to Daban, even to the high place to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Medeba. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth on their housetops and in their squares. Everyone is wailing and dissolved in tears. Heshbon and Elehele also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jehaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zoar and Eglath Shalish Shahyah, for they go up to the ascent of Luhith weeping. Surely on the road to Hornaim they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered, the tender grass died out. There is no green thing. Therefore the abundance which they have acquired and stored up they carry off over the brook of Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. It wa- its wail goes as far as Eglaim, and its wailing even to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Demon are full of blood. Surely I will bring about woes upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. Thematically, we stay very much where we've been. A lot of bad things are going to happen to the people. This oracle includes, as I said, all of chapter 15 goes into chapter 16. So we've paused at this point to take stock of what we've seen so far. Moab, if you don't know, is is present-day Jordan, or a part of present-day Jordan, the westernmost strip of Jordan that borders the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. It was founded, if you may remember, by one of the incestuous sons of Lot and one of his daughters, the famous story out of uh, chapter 19 of uh, Genesis. The people of Moab have historically been uh, enemies of Israel, almost from day one. They were, th- there had been times in the past when the two nations were relatively peaceful with each other, but I would never call them allies or friends, to be sure. Moab was a center of idol worship. All these place names that are mentioned here, most of them are notable historically as being a center of some kind of pagan worship with their own idol that marked that city uniquely. So these are all listed in large part because they become these markers within Moab for the idol worship that typified that culture. That idol worship inevitably spilled over into Israel. That was probably their chief sin, if you will. They became a a source of contamination for Israel with idol worship left and right. Uh, Now, as we enter this third oracle, with what I've read so far, it's time I start giving you some idea of where these puzzle pieces fit in, and we start examining the text with that bigger pattern in mind. Let's go back for a second. First, there was Babylon. And if you looked at the events we, we learned in there, that sequence, looking at the nation and looking at the Antichrist in a future day, the story, the oracle of Babylon taught a lesson that demonstrated God's providence over the course of human history in bringing the enemy to destruction. In other words, Babylon itself is in view at a time, but it transitions outside of just Isaiah's day and time and starts to look at the enemy himself, the Antichrist. And Satan, remember in the, in the oracle, you eventually reach a point of talking about Satan himself coming down into the pit. So there's a, if I take this piece, and you know how puzzles work, right? You don't begin to fit them together until you get at least a few on the table. So 
So we've got a piece sitting out here. God telling an oracle about a Babylon and about a, a meaning that's deeper than just the city, but built into that whole story was a message about what God is prepared to do. And what he was prepared to do was ensure that the enemy and all that he stands for comes to ruin and to judgment in a proper day. There's a, there's a theme or a message built into that. In contrast to that, what else, did, what else came up in the oracle about Babylon? There was a, a, an adjoining piece that was positive, that talked in happy terms about a future. It was the Messianic kingdom again, remember? There, it gave way to a section there about Israel living in peace, and then that would be the point when they could look and taunt the enemy as he goes down to Sheol. So there was this juxtaposing of the destruction and judgment that is sure for the enemy with Israel's future glory. Think about it. In the time Isaiah is reading this and speaking this, uh, Israel's on the precipice of a period of judgment. They'll go into that period of judgment with his oracle, knowing that sooner or later, God brings judgment to the enemy and glory back to Israel. So there's a little bit of meaning built into that piece. The second one we just studied, Philistia. Now that should be fresh on your mind. Think about the message built into that. We understand the details of Philistia and what happened to them, but what's the bigger picture looking at it from Israel's point of view? There would be a temporary weakening of the house of David, of, of Israel and the Davidic throne, specifically within Israel, with Ahaz and, and, his, and his time in that, in that position. But eventually, it comes back to glory. And in contrast to that, the opposition to that throne, which is personified here by the Philistines, they will come to destruction. In fact, they'll come to nothing. Not just a bad outcome, but a non-existence. That's the eventual outcome for anyone who opposes the Davidic throne and Christ specifically sitting on it. So there's a, a message there about the throne. Now, I'm giving you those two because I want you to see the kind of pattern we're looking for here. What message does Israel find in the discussion of Moab? That's the question for piece number three. And like any puzzle, by the way, the more pieces you get, the more clarity comes to the whole picture, right? So trust me that there'll be more as we go. Let's look at the high points. Verse one, R, and the names R and Kerr. R was the uh, capital city of Moab. Kerr was their most fortified city, military center, if you will. Both, we're told here, fall in a night. That's it. One night, they're gone. To give you some point of comparison, that would be like me saying to you, uh, prophetically, I guess, there will be a day when New York City will be laid low and it'll happen in a night. And you could say to yourself, well, I guess a nuclear bomb could do that, but my point is, even then it seems incredible, doesn't it? Even just to suppose it could happen doesn't seem sensible. You wonder what could lead to that. And that's the kind of setting, that's the kind of background that's coming with this oracle to these people. That these powerful, a powerful nation with two powerful cities that have been there for as long as anyone can remember will be gone in a night. That's what he's promising. Then in the following verses, as I said, we see these place names mentioned. All of them are centers of idol worship. Interesting, one of them, Nebo, N-E-B-O. Anybody recognize that one? That's where Moses died. Just an interesting side point. We hear about the citizens wailing and weeping over the destruction of these places. That's not a surprising thing. Verses 6 and 8 talk about the completeness of the destruction. Rivers drying up. Land made desolate. The wealth of that nation being carried off. Okay? God's wrath doesn't end with that. Look in verse 9. Those who escape, what happens to them? The remnant running away from the destruction. They encounter lions. Even the refugees aren't safe. That's how complete this destruction is. Up to this point, we have no timeline offered for this destruction. We have no real clue yet as to when this is going to occur, so we're still left guessing a little bit as to the means of this. Okay, that's the backdrop. Let's move on. Verse 1 of chapter 16. 
Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah, by way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Then, like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon. Give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. For the executioner, or extortioner, sorry, has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompted in righteousness. The tone just changed dramatically. And in fact, the whole conversation seems to have gone off into some new direction here. Isaiah says here to Moab in verse 1, send a tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. It mentions there also Selah. Selah was a city in southernmost Moab. It really defined the southern border of Moab. And the daughter of Zion is a term in Hebrew to mean Mount Moriah. So if you draw a line from the southmost tip of Moab to that location, you're going basically from the extreme, uh, the, the most extreme distance in Moab to the heart of Israel, to, to where the temple is. This is not a literal statement. In other words, Isaiah is not saying, take a lamb and walk it to Jerusalem. What is the meaning of it? It's a euphemism. It's a, the most comparable phrase for us today might be to say, wave the white flag or smoke a peace pipe or whatever. In other words, it's a phrase that means barter for peace. Make peace is the sense. A tribute lamb is a way of making peace. Making peace with who? Well, ostensibly with Israel, but by, by the fact that it's to Mount Moriah, what is Mount Moriah associated with in, in Scripture? It's where Isaac is taken to the top, right? It's the threshing floor. It's the side of the temple. What does it represent on earth anyway? God's dwelling place, right? For the time he put the Shekinah glory there, that was, his, that was ground zero for God on earth. Or another way to say it is make peace with God. Now that seems like a totally bizarre and off-the-point topic to, to mention. And more than that, it's completely uncharacteristic of these oracles, right? Everything up to this point has been complete, utter destruction, wipe them out, your history. Now it's, oh, well, okay, but if you send me a tribute lamb, good things might come next. It's a very interesting offer, one he hasn't extended anywhere else so far. Isaiah here seems to be opening a door for Moab's redemption, although not the whole nation. If you notice, it mentions a remnant. It mentions those who have left and are escaping from the destruction. So we're talking about a smaller group within the nation of Moab being offered some kind of redemptive opportunity by God's grace. Isaiah here is setting up a framework for the salvation of Moab, or at least those within the remnant. But it depends on some things. Look in verses 2 and 3. He says, Moab is like scattering birds. I'm thinking here specifically of those who are trying to escape the judgment. They are unsure of where to go. And then at the fjords of the, of the Arman River, which if you look on a map, that's a river coming out of Moab, going westward directly into the Dead Sea. So there's a, a kind of a river system there, and they're trapped in probably by the water, unsure of where to go. And they're hesitant. And so they ask these questions. Look in verse 3. Isaiah records their confusion. Give us advice. Make a decision. What do we do? And then in verse 4, Isaiah instructs Israel on what they are to do in response to Moab's calls for, for clarity and for help. They are to allow the fugitives to come into their nation and be covered by their shadow. In other words, think of it like a mother hen protecting her chicks. 
The shadow is being cast over these fugitives in the sense of Israel becoming a protector for them. You notice it says later in verse 4, the extortioner has come to an end, destruction has ceased, and oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. That's the sign that the protection now has done its job. It stopped those who were invading from coming over and destroying this remnant. This is fascinating when you think about what an oracle is about here. These are about things said to assure Israel's enemies that they will come to an end. And in the midst of one of these, against one of their most historically feared uh, enemies, God says, but by the way, some of them are going to escape. Some of them are going to be fearful. They're going to come looking for direction. You take them in and give them, and give them uh, comfort and give them sanctuary. Why? Why them? Why not the others that have already been destroyed? Why does this come into the text at this point? Well, look at verse 5. How long are they to be comforted, if, if that's the word? How long are they to be protected in this, this stage? Verse 5 says, Until a throne is established in loving kindness, a faithful judge sitting in the tent of David, seeking justice and righteousness. Obviously, we know who that is, right? Christ. But more than just who, we can also identify when, can't we? When does he do those things? Again, not till the Messianic kingdom, till the time of his reigning on earth, which we have seen talk, come up from time to time in Isaiah so far. So when I put that picture together with what Israel is doing, what starts to come together in my mind? More than just the events of Isaiah's day, if I draw it to a higher point of view and then stretch the time out, what am I really seeing pictured in this event? Who are Moab? Gentiles. How do Gentiles gain sanctuary from the destroyer within Israel? By faith? by making peace with God, by sending a tribute lamb to the Mount Moriah, so to speak. We are grafted into Israel. Salvation is of the Jews for the Gentiles. And by faith, we can gain access to the covenant promises that are Israel's and be in them as sanctuary until the day that we arrive with, king, with our king on earth and us protected by him. But until that day, we're protected in faith, a faith made possible through his promises to Israel. In other words, the Moabite remnant represents the Gentile opportunity to have faith and be part of God's people. We know of at least one famous Moabitess who fits this pattern in her own walk. That's Ruth. She is a woman sought refuge in Israel. She is now counted in the genealogy of Christ herself as one who was given that privilege. But Isaiah makes clear here that this offer for protection is for a remnant. And I think this is consistent with what we understand out of Scripture generally, that the road is narrow, that there is a small group of humanity that will find this opportunity, will know the Lord and come to faith and be a part of this, this opportunity for, for a sanctuary, and that Israel is the mechanism, the means by which God can extend that grace through the New Covenant. So that's been this little turn in the middle of this oracle. Then in verse 6, he turns right back to where he was earlier does another about-face. Verse 6, We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his, his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. Therefore, Moab will wail. Everyone of Moab will wail. You will moan for the raisin cakes of Kerharaseth as those who are utterly stricken. For the fields of Hershbon have withered. The vines of Simba have as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Jazir and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. Therefore I will weep bitterly for Jazer, for the vine of Simmah. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elahel. 
For the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. And therefore my heart intones like a harp for Moab, and my inward feelings for Kurth Haraseth. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. The oracle turns back now to declaring destruction for the nation. There's some comical stuff in here anyway. There are a couple of points I'll mention. Starting with just the obvious, Moab is marked by its pride. But in reality, that's the sin of all men apart from faith and even in faith, unfortunately. But, but pride is the downfall of men in a general sense. And in the light of their punishment under the destruction God pronounces, they're going to wail and they're going to see their land destroyed. But what's somewhat comical here is how much Isaiah focuses on one aspect of the destruction, their prized vineyards. Their vineyards in their day were as famous within the world that knew them as Napa Valley is today. Uh, there just happened to be a very ideal wine-growing region, so a lot of the wine that was consumed in that culture in that day was imported from Moab. Moab was a huge wine-producing region. So it was a huge deal to hear that this whole area was going to be wiped out. And Isaiah expresses, when you hear him saying, my heart, my heart, he's talking personally about himself. He weeps over the destruction, largely on the basis that he's going to miss the wine. It's this loss of the wine. I guess in some ways the way we might know if, if Napa Valley was going to be destroyed when California falls off into the ocean, we would say, oh, well, going to miss that wine though, you know? <laughs> the fortified city here he mentions is Kerr. That, that Kur Haraseth, that's the long name of Kur that was mentioned in the earlier verse of this section. That city was the fortified city. It was the city that guarded that region. It was so valuable to Moab. But in the end, he says, their pagan prayers in their own high places will, will not prevail. So, at this point, what do we know? Moab's destroyed. The remnant gets an opportunity for protection. But at this point, we don't know when this is occurring. Uh, and we don't even know how. It's, it's still a mystery. But we get that information now in verses 13 and 14. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. But now the Lord speaks saying, within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population and his remnant will be very small and impotent. Alright, so in verse 13 he clarifies something. He says, all of what I've just said earlier came from God in some earlier moment. But now I can tell you what he's told me now. So, in his own writing, he separates out these two sections. One was spoken at an earlier point. Now he says, three years from now, all that I have said is going to take place. And I love this phrase, as a hired man counts. That must have been a popular phrase of the day, is my assumption, because it says what we can imagine, right? A hired man is somebody who is indentured. So they're contracted to work a certain amount of time to pay off a debt. Don't you think you counted down the days? I mean, to the minute? It's to emphasize the precision of it. You can bet and you can count. This is how long it's going to take. Well, three years, knowing that, we can come to a fairly good understanding of what he's talking about because based on that kind of a tight timeline and given Isaiah's years when he lived and when, more specifically when he wrote his book, we know he's got to be talking about Assyria. Assyria marched in in 701 B.C. They invaded and wiped Moab off the map. They ceased to exist, but we know a remnant remained. How do we know that? Well, two ways. We know what's been said already. And then in other Old Testament prophetic texts, when, we're, when, when they discuss the kingdom that will come, 
we're told that Moab as a nation of people exists again in the Messianic kingdom. So there is a remnant of Moab that is known, knowable, and assigned and, and comes into that time and is given land again and is called Moab again in the nations that exist within the Messianic kingdom. All right, let's give us a moment to our puzzle again. Remember the puzzle? We have the motif of this puzzle being, I like to think of it like the box. You know, you go to the box to understand what you're building. The box of this puzzle is Israel's enemies, God's judgment against those enemies, but as a subtext, what does it say about God and Israel? Or what does it say about God's plans and and intentions for Israel? Review, one more time. Babylon, a message of how the enemy and his forces go down in flames, but Israel rises from the ashes, right? Philistines, we are taught that the throne of David will rise again, even if it appears to have faded for a time. And when it rises, it will crush all who opposed it. Now in Moab, what do we see here? This one may be a little easier now that we know what we're looking for, right? What kind of underlying message comes out of Moab? There's a remnant, but a remnant of who in this case? Israel's enemies. Where before the remnant, the word remnant has always been exclusively a way of describing Israel in the day of their judgment and wanderings, right? And it still has that meaning. But here we see it now in a different sense. We have a remnant, but a remnant of Israel's enemies. But interestingly, this remnant is sheltered in Israel's shadow and eventually comes to share in her kingdom. These are the Gentiles attached to the Jewish Messiah. So if I'm starting to see this box come together, what I'm starting to understand is, even as God wants to pronounce these specific judgments and make that clear, he hasn't stopped talking about what Isaiah has been talking about the whole book. The same basic five things keep coming up, right? The kingdom, the remnant, God's judgment, his, his redemption for those who are in sin. I mean, there's this big theme. He just keeps weaving it in. Now he's weaving it in by how he describes each of these individual oracles so that when I stand back, I'm starting to see him place these same major themes out there again, but from a slightly different point of view. It's really interesting how, how sophisticated the, the construction of this book is and how God has uh, brought it all together. And so the, the puzzle pieces will continue. Next tonight, we're going to go to chapter 17, finishing with that chapter, looking at Damascus and Samaria. Damascus is Syria today, and we still have that city, of course, as the capital of Syria. So that's an easy one. Remember what Samaria is, though, or as this oracle will describe the region, Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the northern tribes. It became the name most commonly used to identify the north. Uh, As a point of comparison, for example, what's the tribal name most clearly identified with the southern kingdom? Judah. Well, Ephraim was the northern kingdom's Judah. Okay, It was the tribe that became the, the nameplate for the northern kingdom in many cases. So in Scripture, when you see Ephraim, just think northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria was the northern kingdom's Jerusalem. That's where they had a false temple. That's where they had their priesthood and all the rest. Remember what happened in an earlier point in Isaiah when Assyria was starting to flex its muscles in the north and the northern kingdom was nervous and Syria was nervous? What did they try to do to strengthen their position militarily? They came down to Judah, tried to siege Jerusalem so they could compel the southern kingdom to join their alliance. And that's when, remember, they went out to the edge of the city and they they had that conversation with his sons, right? Okay, with his son. All right, well, that failed. They, They were not successful in that. All right, so Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom and Ephraim is another way of saying it. So these are the two that are in view here as a group. And they're viewed here as a group because of the way they acted together in, a, in opposing Judah and trying to destroy 
uh, the seed of David, the house of David. So verse 1. The oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Eroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. So he starts with Damascus, which I've already said, that's the capital of Syria. It's going to be destroyed. Well, of course, we've heard that many times already, just as what has happened to the other cities. But notice, notice there's a change here. From, from the where we started with Babylon, kind of progressively, the destructions of each of these seem to be ratcheting back just a little with each successive one. Here, you know, you're not seeing... In earlier ones, you saw the cities destroyed such that the land wasn't even inhabitable. Arab would never pitch his tent there again in the case of, of Babylon, right? Now we've reached the point here where there's a ruin. So there's some physical structure left over, and it's still a, a grazing area, though there won't be anybody there to frighten the animals off, so it's an empty place as far as people are concerned. Then going down further, likewise, Ephraim will see its fortified cities disappear. And then in verse 3... Isaiah, I just love this guy. He uses his trademark sarcasm again. And it, it, it isn't easy to see, but it's really funny when you realize what he's saying. He says that the glory of Damascus and Ephraim will be like the glory of the sons of Israel. Okay, well, that sounds like a compliment. Until you give it a moment's thought. The glory of Israel had long since departed. The Shekinah glory was not in Israel anymore. It's gone. That's the meaning of the word glory. And there is no glory in Israel because it's an apostate nation. I mean, he's been declaring judgment against them all this time as it is. So what he's saying is, you'll be, you, know, you will have as much glory as, as these people do. It's a roundabout way of saying you're going to have no glory. So it's a kind of sarcastic compliment, backhanded compliment. And it's important to remember, as I've said already, Ephraim is part of Jacob, part of Israel. And yet they are apostates, so they've got to receive judgment here. But remember, in the end, God's going to return these tribes just as he will the tribes of Judah. So even though they're apostate right now, even though they're under this judgment, I want you to understand the distinction that's being made here or should be in your mind. When he talked about Philistia, no mercy. When he talked about Babylon, no mercy. Moab, virtually no mercy. Now he talks about Damascus and he talks about Ephraim. Why are these cities getting what seems to be lesser punishment, and particularly in the case of Ephraim? Right, because Ephraim can't go away. Not in its ultimate sense. It's a tribe, as well as the rest of the northern tribes. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be lost and still are for us today, but not permanently so. So he is intentionally not treating them in the same way he's treated some of these other enemies. So he couples the prophecy of judgment with a promise of redemption for Ephraim in the next verses. Look at verse 4. He says, Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears. Or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives on the topmost bow. Four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. You see a motif reemerging there? One of our five? One of our five big topics that keeps coming up in the book? Remnant again. In the day, now notice he starts that in verse 4. In that day, what's the day? Just trace it back. What are we talking about? The day when all this destruction shows up, right? In that day, destruction will arrive. And by the way, historically we know this came for the northern kingdom under the hands of the Assyrians, right? 
Then he says the glory of Jacob will fade. Jacob here refers to the tribes of Israel that were in the north. That will fade. I like the term fade because it really illustrates what's happening. You've got 12 tribes. Not all of them are going away. Ten of them are being taken away. So the brightness, if you will, has been dimmed by 10 out of 12 or 10 out of 13 if you count Levi. So then he goes on. He says they'll become lean. That's a similar, similar way of saying it. They go from fat to lean. But then he says it's going to be like God. God's work in this respect is going to be like gathering grain in a field. And here's another way to trace back to Ruth a little bit. The story of Ruth is the story of a woman who is poor and widowed and has no support, so she goes to gather the leftover gleanings in the field as her only means of support, which is something the law allowed. Well, it goes to the fact that when you take wheat out of a field, you're not perfect. You leave stuff behind. It's not worth the effort to pick up every last grain. So you leave it for the poor. God says comparing the way I'm going to wipe out northern, the northern kingdom of Israel is fairly compared to that process. I'm going to leave some behind. The remnant. And he then compares it in other agricultural terms to someone taking olives off a tree. They don't get all of them. There's always a few left at the top and so on. So it's the remnant. God promises that the destruction will still provide for a remnant. And then in verse 7, In that day man will have regard for his Maker, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the ashram and incense stands. In that day their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest, or their branches which they have abandoned before the sons of Israel, and their land will be a desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange and set them with vine slips of a strange God. In the day that you plant it, you carefully fenced it in, and in the morning you bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickness and incurable pain. Again, in that day, verse 7, so we're still in the same day of judgment, he says, men will have regard for their Maker, for the Holy One of Israel. Here again, that may sound hopeful, but it's actually sardonic in the way he's approaching the text. He simply is saying that all their altars, all their false gods, all that they had uh, in false worship has been destroyed by the by the way this destruction takes place with Assyria. So all they have left to worship is their maker. And we, we even use a term similar to that in a comparable way, right? Prepare to meet your maker. It's not said with this sense of they turn to God in faith. It's more in the sense of a desperation. <laughs> they got nothing left and they have to just cry to whatever's left. That's the sense there that's being projected here. And that's confirmed as you go further down. He says, they've forgotten the God of their salvation, right? They've served strange gods. There's no sense here of redemption. It's completely from a point of view of they're apostate. So don't read too much into those early verses. It's, it's, again, it's sardonic. Now, let's take this last piece as we come to an end and look at it as a puzzle piece as well in what we've, we've done. And to do that, I've got to go to the last three verses of the chapter. This is a curious scene, and it brings this oracle to an end. Verse 12, he says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, and he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, there is terror, before morning they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. Now what's interesting here is this does not fit historically the pattern of, of Assyria's time in coming in and destroying the northern kingdom. 
it appears to suggest that you have nations. Here it says here, many nations rumbling. The word in Hebrew just means a loud crashing. So it's a kind of a tumult, a kind of big activity with a lot of violence and a lot of noise. Mighty waters is the phrase. That's a classic term in Scripture, by the way, for armies. Mighty waters is a picture of armies rolling in and destroying. Well, we know that's how they showed up, certainly. So that part of it fits if you're looking at the, the historic facts of how Assyria did the work of God's judgment in northern Israel. But then the second part of it doesn't work anymore because the second part of it talks about that they will be repulsed, basically. They'll be pushed out. And those who plunder us, he says, and those who pillage us will be no more before morning. Well, that doesn't exactly fit the circumstances unless you think it's referring to the way God repelled this same army when it came against Jerusalem later. But this prophecy, this oracle, isn't spoken about that group. So it, it seems a bit off. It doesn't seem like it fits the pattern very well. I think what this refers to, and there's some doubt here, I, I can't be sure. What I think it refers to is he's jumped forward in time to the Antichrist doing the same thing the Assyrians did. In other words, we know that Assyria's encroachment into Judah and into Israel generally is prophetically a picture of what the Antichrist will do in the time of tribulation. We've covered that already. If we hold that same thought and bring it to this moment in the text, then we would say this is a picture or a description of how the nation of Israel will be under this same kind of oppressive moment, only it will come to a different end. Whereas the first one came to the apparent end of the northern kingdom. God said, remember already, there'll be a remnant. Then it makes sense that he follows that with this last step of saying, and in a future day when this event seems to repeat itself, they'll come to a different end in that day. Affirming that this isn't the last you've heard of the northern kingdom. That would be another way to look at it. So what's the final puzzle piece here? Well, just as God is not going to punish all of Israel's enemies, in other words, he's going to make provision for some Gentiles, as depicted in Moab, well, likewise, he's also not going to overlook the sin of his own people. And so he will bring judgment against them as well, though it does not arrive at their destruction, at their end. See, he puts the two together. God is looking at Israel's enemies with judgment, but he makes some exceptions. But then turn that back around. He's looking at Israel as his favored people, but he's not ignorant of their sin, and he's not going to turn a blind eye to it either. So there is some judgment for them, but not to their destruction. There's destruction over here, but not to every one of them. And he brings that to those two messages together. It's really the message of the gospel writ large, if you will. Not the classic description of the gospel I recognize, but the gospel as it's presented in its fullness in Scripture. That God is saving men, initially with Israel and through Israel to the Gentile world, and he judges all those outside of faith. And that's the message that he's starting to piece together. We've still got several nations to go before the whole thing comes to a conclusion. Thank you for your patience. Let's uh, go to the Lord one more time. Father, we are uh, thankful again for your word, and we're thankful, Father, particularly for the wisdom that is on display every time we open it up. A wisdom that is beyond our, our comprehension at times. And we know, Father, that you have taken great effort to present each and every word of Scripture to us through men like Isaiah. And we are thankful, Father, that we have had the strength and energy to devote uh, our own attention to it as we receive it today. Lord, not everything we read in the pages of Scripture makes immediate sense or even, I guess, in some respects, it seems uh, applicable to us and we know that that's not, not a surprise to you. We also trust, Father, though, that you presented it to us tonight for some purpose and that purpose will be clear to us in a proper day, if not already.
We thank you, Father, for, the, for that privilege to study. Thank you for each and every person who comes here on a regular basis and shares and, and participates in this class. And we thank you, Father, that we might uh, see everyone again in the new year after our Christmas celebration. Bring us home safely tonight and back again in a few weeks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.